Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Conservatives and right-leaning media, politicians, and individuals have increasingly attempted to cut federal spending for all kinds of human needs, claiming that the government takes too much in taxes. But they've turned a blind eye to the elephant in the room, the gargantuan budget of the so-called Defense Department. In fact, more than half of every federal income tax dollar goes to the military. And for those of us with deep ethical and moral qualms about what those dollars do, war tax resistance has looked like the answer. Today, we'll be talking with the current and past coordinators of the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, Lincoln Rice and Ruth Benn. In particular, we're going to walk through the process used to train war tax resistance counselors, taking a look at the motivations, methods, processes, and consequences of refusing to give our tax money to the government for the pursuit of war, and also how those withheld funds can be used for world healing purposes. Right now, we go to both Skype and the phone to speak to Lincoln Rice and Ruth Ben. Lincoln, thank you so much again for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And Ruth, this is the first time I'm having you on, and this is long overdue. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you. We have you here because both of you have done a fair amount of war tax resistance counseling, and in particular training of counselors, which is a real important part of building a national movement. Ruth, could you give us a little bit about your history, both with war tax resistance and with the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, NWTRCC, that's pronounced typically NUTRIC, the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee. So give me a little bit of your history, Ruth. Well, mostly related to war tax resistance, I guess. I did start out in social services (laughs) quite a while ago now, but... Kind of once the anti-war bug hit me, which was in the late 70s when I got most involved in the anti-war movement. When I found out about war tax resistance and got involved in that work, it just made sense to me to spend more time at it because in social services, it feels like we're always fighting for money. And here's this budget in Washington that gives way too much to the military half to the military or whatever it is, while all the people who are doing great work out there and running these wonderful agencies are struggling to finance their work and take care of people and teach and do all kinds of things where the money should be going. So um, I got pretty active in the peace movement in the early, late 70s, early 80s. And also when I found out about war tax resistance, it honestly just made sense to me. Like, why am I working for peace and paying for war? So at some level or another, I've been a war tax resistor for a pretty long time now. I started out with phone tax resistance, which was resisting the uh, excise tax, federal excise tax on the telephone. It's actually very minimal now, so it doesn't mean much anymore. But at that time, it was still a pretty big campaign. 
and then I moved on to income tax resistance. So, but I'd been living in Massachusetts then, but in 1987, I moved to New York, started working at War Resisters League. So I was on staff at War Resisters League for about 13 years, and War Tax Resistance was part of my organizing work there. I also did trainings at that time, and then I became the Nutrick National War Tax Coordinator in 2003 and did that for 15 years. So yeah, it's been quite a lot of years now and involved in this network. And Lincoln, let's review your background with respect to war tax resistance and particularly with Nutrick. I was born in Green Bay, raised in Green Bay, but came down to Milwaukee to go to college in the mid-90s. And towards the end of my college years, decided to check out the local Catholic worker in Milwaukee, which is, is still called Casa Maria. And they're an intentional community that provides shelter for families that are homeless, but it also has a strong critique of war and violence. And similar to the thinking of many war tax resistors, a critique of the federal budget with almost uh, half of the money that's uh, brought in from the federal income tax being used for military purposes. So seeing this great need mean, led to many other Catholic worker folks across the United States being war tax resistors. So when I joined that community in the mid-90s, on their bookshelf was a book put out by the War Resisters League called War Tax Resistance, A Guide to Withholding Your Support from the Military. So that's where I kind of learned most of the ins and outs from reading that book. But there was also a couple of war tax resistors who lived in that community. And just by happenstance, Nutrick has two national meetings a year that move around the United States. And so about a year after I got very interested in war tax resistance, the national meeting happened to be held here in Milwaukee. So that was my introduction to Nutrick and meeting some of the folks involved with Nutrick and just keep being able to hear other people's stories and how they practice war tax resistance. Because at the Catholic Worker House, most folks practiced it by earning underneath the taxable income limit. And so I viewed meeting the Nutrick folks from across the United States who came to this meeting as I viewed it more as meeting normal people who have regular jobs and we're taking more of a risk than just earning underneath the taxable limit, though I think that's a viable and reputable method also that has a smaller carbon footprint. But I was very impressed by meeting all these people that work jobs and refuse to pay that money and then dedicate it to other causes that they believe are underfunded. So it's been since 1998 that I've been a war tax resistor and served on the administrative committee, kind of like the board of Nutrick in the early 2000s when Ruth first came on as coordinator for Nutrick and then took over as the coordinator for Nutrick almost two years ago in May of 2018. Those are broad shoulders that you had to assume taking the position from Ruth. And Ruth, I want to thank you for your service. People have this habit of saying that to people who served in the military. I think that people who serve for the betterment of the world and particularly enabling other people to do good in the world deserve that kind of appreciation, and I do feel that towards you. Thank you so much, Ruth. Well, thanks. It's not a hardship, though. It's more a privilege to be able to get paid for work you really believe in. So I'm grateful to the network out there for helping to support it. 
So, Lincoln, you mentioned that it was at one of these two national gatherings that happen each year for NUTRIC, for National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, that you got exposed to it, and it happened to be in Milwaukee that year. I think it's worth mentioning right away that this year it's going to be in Chicago, so pretty nearby, Milwaukee folks, Wisconsin, Illinois. Certainly people come from all over for this, but May 1st to 3rd, it'll be held in Chicago, and people can check that out via the website NWTRCC, National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee dot org. And I'd mentioned, I asked both you, Lincoln Rice and Ruth Ben, to do your little introduction. I've been involved in and doing war tax resistance since 1982. And I started in Milwaukee. So at Casa Maria House, Don Timmerman was part of that initial group. And thanks to him for being part of my inspiration. Now, what you did this past January, and I understand it was an online conversation you did back on January 25th, Lincoln, you led a training for war tax resistance counselors. I'm imagining that the listeners to today's Spirit in Action program may or may not be war tax resistors, but it's not really likely that they're counselors yet. So I'd like you to conduct a kind of a training, short form of what you did, or at least pieces of it, today for Spirit in Action, so that people can get an idea of what the decision tree is like, what the alternatives are like, what the possibilities are of doing this kind of witness. Would you be willing to do that? Yeah, that would be fantastic. You know, just to mention that there are currently over 60 war tax resistance counselors in the United States. You know, so if someone does have a question about war tax resistance or they're interested in it or thinking about it, I mean, they can always call or email email myself at the national office. But if they would go to the website on the About tab, there's a link to our counselors. And so it also gives people the opportunity that, you know, I'm in Milwaukee, but let's say there's someone in Houston, Texas, and they'd like to talk to someone in person about it, make it a little bit more personable. You know, they could find the person that's in Houston on that list. They could have a conversation and get to know someone who's doing this lives not too far from them. That'll be great. And Ruth, we have you here because you've done a lot of training of counselors and working with individuals as well who are considering more tax resistance. And I thought it would be valuable to add to both Lincoln's experience. Yours is 15 years long and working in the job as coordinator for Nutric. But I thought that there's places where you're going to want to chime in. And, and Lincoln, I think you'll let her, won't you? <laughs> Oh, of course. <laughs> when I have questions that I don't know the answer to, I, I often contact Ruth. So she's a great resource. So let's go right ahead and get this going. So why don't you, Lincoln, open up our training session? Here we are. We're, we've just, all of us, uh, and you know, right now there's people listening at stations across the United States, the wide range of community radio stations that carry spirit in action. They're all listening and they're, they've got their pens and typing apparatus out and they're going to record notes about how to be a good war tax resistance counselor. Would you open up our meeting? Sure. So after doing introductions so that folks could learn a little bit about each other that are taking part in the training, we would begin by talking about methods of counseling because there are different ways and methods to counsel folks, you know, where some might be more goal oriented, where maybe someone is going under counseling because they want to try to give up an addiction or maybe a military recruiter is trying to get you to join one of the branches of the military. 
might be more goal oriented. It might be more trying to talk you into something or to help reinforce something. But we're always very clear with our counselors that we practice what we call non-directive counseling. If someone contacted one of our counselors, we wouldn't be trying to push them into doing something they don't want to do. It'd be helping them identify their priorities, realize what the different options are, what the different consequences are, that we're here to be supportive and not judgmental. So hopefully at the end of the conversation or the end of the counseling session, the person that we've been talking to will feel more empowered with the knowledge that they've gained and the reflection they've gone through to make their own informed decision about war tax resistance. I know in 1982, when I first resisted my federal taxes going to war, big part of my motivation was I just got back in 1980 from two years in Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer. And to get back and start earning money and find out that half of it was going to go to the military, it blew my mind. And just to think that I was working half of my work time that was put in to pay those federal taxes was going to something that I absolutely did not believe in. So what motivations usually bring people to you who want the counseling? I'd say it's a war is in the news or, you know, we did get a few more phone calls. You know, phone calls kind of sway during the year. We'll get more calls when it's tax time. So when people are really thinking about taxes because it's time to write that check or a conversation that's happening over Twitter between the president of the United States and the person in charge of North Korea, you know, that can get people thinking about where their money is being used. When they hear about a drone strike at a wedding in the Middle East, or they see terrible things happening to children at the border dealing with the immigration system in the United States and seeing U.S. personnel that look like they're dressed up like soldiers and treating people like they're the enemy instead of people fleeing a conflict looking for help and aid. So, I mean, it definitely depends on the person, but there are all different paths and triggers, you might say, that lead people to contemplate war tax resistance and giving us a call. And Ruth, has that been similar in your experience? Yeah, I think so. It comes in waves, you know, it a lot depends on if the peace movement is strong, if something's happened and like the invasion of Iraq in 2003, that was a really big time when, uh, you know, the peace movement was strong and a lot of people were really looking at that money. But also when Trump was elected, there was a lot of new interest for all kinds of reasons at that point. The wall being one in particular, the money that Mexico really wasn't going to pay for the wall. The border issues, yeah, as Lincoln said, were pretty big. Mm -hmm. So go on with your training then, if you will, Lincoln. After we've kind of set a base with these new soon-to-be counselors about non-directive counseling kind of being the overall method that we should use when talking to interested folks, we'd talk about different methods or varieties of war tax resistance. Because normally the people who are becoming counselors They'll have been war tax resistors on their own, so they'll probably know their way of practicing war tax resistance very well. But we need to make sure that they're also well-versed in what other people who are war tax resistors do. And so to give some examples of that, there are war tax resistors who they make enough to owe federal income taxes. So the decision is, do they want to file or do they want to even refuse to cooperate by filing their federal income taxes with the federal government? And then those that file, 
Some make the decision to withhold all of their federal income taxes because even though it's only about only only about 50% of your federal income taxes that go to fund the military, some people would say, well, anything that you send in, it's still going to be used for the military. And since 50% is such a huge number, I'm going to refuse to pay that to the federal government and redirect all of that money to underfunded areas, either here in the United States or in other parts of the world. And But other people who are maybe less comfortable or just want to try something out might say, well, this year I'm going to resist $50 because then the consequences are much smaller and you can kind of get a taste for how that feels. But, you know, with all of that, you know, there's different possibilities, there's different consequences. And there's also then the legal way to practice war tax resistance, which is to earn less than the taxable income limit, which right now is for a single person, about $12,400 for 2020, if you don't have any other deductions or tax credits coming your ways. But probably what we'd especially focus on in that part of the session is particularly the pluses and minuses of choosing to file a tax return, if you would owe funds or not filing a tax return, where probably the advantage for someone who didn't want to file a tax return, especially if they're self-employed, is the federal government might not realize that they're refusing to pay. So if this is someone who wanted to keep kind of more off the grid and not be noticed, that might be something that they would want to do. If you're someone who's a wage earner and you get a W-2 at the end of the year, which is also sent to the IRS, that person might be more inclined to say, the IRS will already learn about my income from my employer, so I'll file my taxes, even though I'll refuse to pay some or all of it, with the added advantage there being that from 10 years of when you file, there's a statute of limitations that expires. So once you file 10 years later, the money that you owed from 10 years ago is no longer due to the IRS if they haven't had time to collect it at that point. We want to make sure that people fully understand these options and consequences so that they can properly counsel others. I want you to say that again, Lincoln, because I actually didn't know that particular detail. So there's a year you filed, your tax form says you owe $5,000. And in today's world, that means that 2500 actually a bit more than that, will go to military purposes in our federal government. So you decide, no, I'm not going to do this. Ten years later, if they haven't collected it by then, they don't get to collect anymore? I mean, is it that clear? Assuming, and this is, we try to take, I mean, our goal is to take an ethical high ground as much as possible. And so we definitely counsel people not to practice fraud, not to put anything incorrect on their tax form or lie about anything on their tax form. So as long as their tax form is truthful, that's correct. There's a 10-year statute of limitations. There is no statute of limitations for fraud. So if someone put something deceitful on their tax form and the IRS found out about it 25 years later, they could still go after a person for that. So sometimes being the honorable person pays off uh, after 10 years. <laughs> yeah. It's, a, it's, it's usually kind of fun, you know, when you realize if you, the IRS usually, well, they often send, they, about once a year, they send out something that shows all the years you owe for. So you can see that one of those years past 10 years has dropped off, you know, so it is exciting. I mean, I think I'm sure that I've resisted more 
than the IRS has ever collected because of all these years that have dropped off now that they never collected for. So, yeah, a lot of people will put on the listserv, oh, another year dropped off, yay, you know, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> it's another one of those advantages of growing older. There's a lot of deficits to getting older, aches and pains, but seeing those years drop off, it makes me want to live to a thousand. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So you counsel people in all these different methods, and I want to bore in on a couple of them. You mentioned, Ruth, what used to be phone tax resistance, and that is actually the very first resistance I did. At that point, I think 3% of the amount that I owed to the phone company was a tax that went specifically, originally at least, to pay for war. I think it started during Korean War and then it was revived. Uh, it certainly was jacked up a lot during Vietnam. And then... It actually and, started when? During the Spanish-American War or something? Cause... Well, I wasn't alive back then. That's why I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, phone tax resistance was the first time and, you know, it just meant I would tell the phone company and then the phone company eventually tells the federal government. And so it was very low risk. And then from there, I started looking at this very major amount that was coming out of my taxes going to the military which religiously I'm opposed to. I'm Quaker, right? I, it's, it's an ethical choice in my life, and it's also, for me, a, a deep spiritual thing about how I see the world. Then I had to think about it. Do I do nominal? Do I not pay $100, or you could not pay all of it, and get various results from that? So as I became more and more aware, my commitment to this grew. And so people don't have to start out right away saying, I'm going to take on the entire federal government alone. And that, that's a very key part of this, I think, right? Whether you're doing it alone. Yeah, I think that's important that there are other folks that are doing this all across the United States. And I must admit, I think there are probably more folks doing it alone now, or that's the sense I get, that are doing it without interaction with other war tax resistors. And part of that, I think, is because of the internet. We're here mainly to support people. And, you know, we try to raise money for ourselves just to keep us going. But we're not in this business, so to speak, to make money. And so like 99% of the resources that we offer are absolutely free online. Anyone can look at them, download them. And so I think a lot of people learn about war tax resistance and might start doing it just by reading our resources online. So it does sometimes happen that I'll get a call when someone gets that first letter from the IRS <laughs> uh, <laughs> saying, you, for you didn't pay. They get a little frightened. They get a little scared. You know, they know what our books say, but now they finally feel like, boy, I'd like to talk to someone about this. So I, I would say I definitely get quite a few calls like that throughout the year where it's, they're practicing on their own and, and now it is a good time for them to, they know they're not alone, but now they can actually talk to someone and verify that and hear someone else's story. And remember folks, that website is NWTRCC, that stands for National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Council dot org. And of course, the links on NordenSpiritRadio.org, where are all the links for my guests of the past 14 and a half years. Let's continue with your training then, Lincoln, like the one that you led back in January. What's the next topic? The next topic that we'd spend a little bit of time on is going over the federal form W-4. 
I think a lot of people, they hear the W and then the number and they're thinking the W-2, which is that's what you get at the end of the year if you worked for an employer that states what your income was for the year. But W-4, if you don't quite remember, is the form that you fill out when you first start a job. You put information on there that will help your employer determine how much to take out of your paycheck that'll be set aside and sent to the IRS so that at the end of the year, then you'll do your taxes and you'll see, do I owe money? Do I get a refund? And so whether people get a refund or owe money all goes back to how they filled out their W-4 form. So for people who are employees, if they want to practice war tax resistance, really the only viable way to make sure that they aren't already paying to the federal government throughout the year is to change their W-4 form. So we go over that form of resistance, which actually at this moment, we spent a little bit more time on this this past January during our session because the federal government changed the W-4 form quite substantially. It was one of their largest changes in that form. I don't even know in how long. It's more than 20 years because it seemed like it was about the same since I started practicing war tax resistance over 20 years ago. Ruth, what was your experience with this? Is that where war tax resistance normally start when people were consulting with you? It's one of the common calls, I guess. In workshops, yes, it was always something to spend more time on because it is confusing until you sit down and actually do it. But yeah, it's certainly one of the things. A lot of people call and say, I just started a job and I have to fill this out today. What do I do? (laughs) That was pretty common. And Lincoln, if you could, just a little bit of overview, the W-4, do they call them exemptions still? What do they call them? Just so people recognize what you're actually talking about. Yes. They used to call them withholding allowances. So you'd always have to put this number down of one, two, five, you know, probably the average person doesn't normally put down more than five. But again, you don't know what this, how this form works. What does five mean? But under the old, before the new tax code or tax code updates went into effect under the Trump administration, there used to be exemptions on your 1040 tax form. That would be for yourself, a spouse, children. And so those withholding allowances you put on your W-4 form often were somewhat similar to the exemptions on the 1040, but most people didn't realize that you might have other circumstances in your life that could allow you to put a higher number. So even if you're a family of four, you might actually have a reason to put down a number six instead of four. But now you don't have to worry about that because that's the old system. Under the new system, we just want you to put down what your deductions are going to be, your income tax deductions. That's kind of similar to the income tax deductions you have on your 1040 form at the end of the year also. On the new W-4 form, it'll also ask for, are you single, married, do you have kids? As we mentioned earlier, a single person gets a standard deduction of $12,400 for the year 2020. So if you mark down single, the form already is computing whatever your income is, I'm subtracting $12,400. So for instance, if your income was $25,000 for the year, just to keep it simple, when you get to the deductions line on the new W-4 form, you could just put in $13,000. So as a single person with that $13,000 deduction on that line, with 
you marked the box single, so that's 12400 You add those together, it's a little bit more than your income of ends up being 25400 That would tell your employer that your deductions are greater than your income and not to remove any federal income tax from your paycheck and to let you take it all home. We do also on the website have kind of a simple flyer that breaks this down. And we have a little eight-page booklet that kind of goes through all the ins and outs. If you only wanted to withhold 50%, it gives you the formula so that you could figure out any amount that you wanted to that works for yourself. And again, that website is nwtrcc, National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee.org. We're speaking today with Lincoln Rice, who is the current coordinator for NUTRIC, NWTRCC. He's the current coordinator, and we're privileged to have Ruth Ben here. She used to be the coordinator for 15 years, and she still is an invaluable resource and help and encouragement to people to live the best lives that they can. They're here today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. Our website, northernspiritradio.org. Our program is syndicated across the country. Our programs are carried on 40-plus stations across the nation. And wherever you're hearing us from, please remember to come to our website. Check out the links. You'll find the link to Nutrick and to our previous guests of the past 14 and a half years. You'll find a place to post comments. I love comments. We love communication. And so please join Join us on our website, click on comments and ratings, and there's also a donate button, which is how you can help us out to make sure that we can continue to provide this programming. It's almost 15 years now. It's your donations that keep us going. And even more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support your local community radio station, your alternative media. Right now, there's about six corporations that control more than 90% of the media in this country. So the channels to your ears are being controlled by very few hands, and often their interests are not the same as what happens in your local community, and that's why your community radio station is so important. So please support them, help them out. If you can help after that, click on the donate button on nordenspiritradio.org. And don't forget to go and check out all of the resources on National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee's website. It's nwtrcc.org, the link's on nordenspiritradio.org. And as you were just saying, Lincoln, there's a resource online to look at what you do with the W-4, how you calculate what you feel clear to have withheld or not withheld from your taxes. But of course, as soon as you mention anything like that, the question is, is there legal blowback if I do this? Is this time in the training where you mentioned that? <laughs> yes. And actually, I would have made sure during the conversation of the W-4 to mention it also that altering your W-4 in this way, that would make you owe a significant amount of taxes at the end of the year is considered a form of civil disobedience. So one can technically face a fine and possibly even jail time. Like that is on the books, but we always like to be clear with folks that since the 1970s, only one war tax resistor has been prosecuted for this. And he was found guilty and given eight hours per week of community service back in 1980. So basically in the last 40 years, at least for the W-4 portion, there have not been serious consequences Well, normally nothing happens regarding the W-4 change, but 
what does happen, perhaps a couple times a year, I'll get a call where someone notifies the office that their employer got a letter from the IRS where the IRS is now changing their W-4 for them. (laughs) And so the IRS has noticed that things aren't going the way they'd like it to go. And so they just notify the employer. They tell the employer, based on what we believe this person's income is, change their withholding to this. And so that, that does happen, but there haven't been any legal consequences that have resulted in any fines or any jail time in over 40 years. We should be clear. Ruth, you mentioned you started out in social work in Lincoln. I'm not sure what all of your training is in, but neither one of you is lawyers, right? This isn't legal advice, is it? Correct. This is not legal advice. (laughs) Though my undergraduate degree is in accounting and I have worked, I've never got certified as a CPA, but I have worked as an accountant over the years on and off. You won't find too many lawyers who want to give this sort of information to people, you know, the options available in terms of war tax resistance, who help us at some level, but lawyers and accountants don't think this is a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Well, continue on through the training, if you would, Lincoln. The next part of the training we'd spend some time on, we would call this section Aging, Health, and the War Tax Resistor. Now we'd get into one of the most common areas that actually does affect war tax resistors as a consequence, uh, and that regards Social Security. I guess we had, yeah, we haven't talked that much about consequences up to this point. For those that resist and refuse to pay, you know, maybe a couple times a year, often less, we might hear of someone whose wages have been garnished. But even that is rare, partially because the IRS offices, just like most aspects of the federal government, except the military, have seen drastic cuts. So the IRS over the last you know, 10 years has seen cuts, or at least the non-replacement of employees who are retiring. Over 20,000 employees have not been replaced at the IRS. So they have less people to do the same amount of work when you also account for the fact that they need a lot more help when it comes to computer management of all of this stuff and privacy concerns. And so in any case, going back to Social Security, that's something that's relatively easy for them to do when it comes to doing a wage garnishment. That can take up a lot more time and energy of contacting an employer. You know, you're going to get a phone call. But for Social Security, they basically just need to send down a letter figuratively down the hall to the Social Security Administration. And without having to jump through any hoops or uh, get many permissions, they can garnish 15% of someone's Social Security. So I'd say that is the most common consequence where war tax resistors who are receiving Social Security, many of them are regularly being garnished 15% of that amount every month. That's one of the consequences. Now, again, I started as a war tax resistor in 1982, and it was right around that time or not long after that the Ronald Reagan administration pushed through penalties. If you didn't fill out the form correctly in some way that they considered bad, uh, they could give you a $500 penalty. And if they thought that you were fighting something in court in a way that was frivolous, there was another $5,000 penalty. Those kind of penalties, do they come in today in the same way? Ruth could maybe speak more to this, but I'll I'll start. It was in the first decade of the 2000s that we did start seeing people getting a 500 or sometimes $5,000 penalty or fine for a frivolous fine. 
which they seem to be getting because they were sending a letter with their form explaining why they weren't paying the amount that was on their 1040 form. But in fact, that was uh, incorrect use of the frivolous fine. The frivolous fine is only supposed to be imposed if someone is taking an illegal or a unwarranted deduction on their 1040 form, such as back when there were dependents on your form and you could get a deduction for that. If you wanted to kind of take a fake deduction and say, well, because of all the people affected in Iraq, all the children in Iraq that are affected by the U.S. war there, I'm going to take this many million deductions <laughs> or you know <laughs> exemptions for those kids. You know, if someone put that on their form to say now it equals zero, you know, they could legitimately and legally be hit with this fine. So thankfully, or yeah, I'll let Ruth, you can continue the how this resolved. No, actually, I was just going to say I don't know about legitimate, but <laughs> they could do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It is the way the statutes are written and it is what the intended purpose of that. And it had to do even if you wrote a message across your form and didn't fill it out at all or you know people in uh, sort of other tax protester kind of networks would put all zeros on their form stuff like that that you know the IRS calls frivolous. So yeah, but we did this thing sort of by chance there's this systemic problem office of the IRS or the tax advocate or I guess it's the tax advocate's office. So we sent a complaint in about people getting the frivolous penalty because of sending a letter with their form. And it took about, I don't know, two years or something. But the woman who was working on it was actually quite sympathetic and she worked her way through all the levels of the system, and they did issue a memo to the IRS saying this is not frivolous to enclose a letter. You know, it changed, although, of course, you know, people might still find that uh, they get a warning about frivolous penalties when they send a letter. That can still happen, but I think people haven't been getting the fine for it anyway, or that it's more easy to fight now. Yeah, I wanted to be clear about that. One of the steps that some people have taken to become more tax resistors, I guess you might call it symbolic, but with their form, they'd send in their form correctly filled out by the way that the IRS wants you to do it. They might pay or maybe they still have a refund coming or something, but they'd send a letter along with it just saying, I object to this, that this morally offends me or that for whatever reason, I can't be part of this. In that case, that was a first step for some folks. And then when the IRS ignored that and the government ignored that, then maybe they went on to higher forms of war tax resistance. So to your knowledge, both Ruth and Lincoln, is it okay to send in a letter saying what you're doing? Yes. <laughs> Legally and legitimately, it is okay. Though there have been two people during the last eight months who have been threatened again with this frivolous fine. We believe for sending in a letter, but we're still kind of working that out. One of them was now cleared up and the other one we're still, well, the one person called in and got it cleared up in about five minutes. The other person wanted to send a letter so there'd be more of a paper trail. So whenever you send a letter to the IRS, things take longer. So the IRS has been sitting on this letter now for about three months. That sounds to me like a rather frivolous delay upon their part. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So uh, we, I do also put out there for folks that send letters that you could always send in your taxes separately and send a letter directly to the IRS commissioner 
you know, separate from sending in your tax form. So even though you can't legally be hit with this fine, by sending in a letter, at least at this point, again, it seems like you might be opening yourself up to a hassle. So onward to more of this training. We haven't got way too long to go. And and I know, folks, by the way, that as we speak with Lincoln Rice, who is the coordinator for the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, as we're going through this, Lincoln, I know that we're just grabbing little bits and pieces of what you actually covered in the full-scale training that you did back in January. Again, these resources, folks, are on their website nwtrcc.org. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. We'll get you there so that you can find all these resources, look into the detail, and contact Lincoln, who is, again, current coordinator for Newtrick. So on with the training. So at this point, we would also spend a little time on the Affordable Care Act, since it's still around. (laughs) Because when the Affordable Care Act first went into existence, If you didn't have proof of insurance, there could be a a tax on that. That's no longer the case. But, you know, just going through the implications, because for some war tax resistors who qualified for subsidies, these subsidies essentially eliminated their tax debt for the year. Though for others who were non-filers or, you know, for whatever reason, they came to the conclusion that they prefer not to file. But if they wanted to gain the subsidies and qualified for the subsidies, that required that someone file your tax forms. So we don't need to get into all the details of that, but we do go through that in the training so that if people have questions or we currently receive subsidies, what are the implications? Then we would move on to the correspondence that one typically gets from the IRS. And so one of those is what Ruth already mentioned. In addition to a letter that, you'll, that you can count on saying, if you're a filer, you'll get a letter, guaranteed a letter each year that says you didn't pay this year. This is how much you owe. And then oftentimes there's a due date, which I always find silly because you already missed the first due date of August 15th. And there's, <laughs> if you miss the next due date, they'll just keep giving you new due dates. But if you've been doing it for years, they'll often send you something that gives you a list of how much you owe for each year. Oftentimes, especially the first letter comes certified. Sometimes the second letter does also. And I know for me, when I started doing this in my early 20s, that was the first piece of certified mail I've ever gotten in my life. So, (laughs) (laughs) And and it, it can be intimidating. Even now, sometimes when I see that letter from the IRS and I'm thinking, oh boy, you know, what could it be this time? Normally, it's just a letter saying, hey, you still owe. But it could be things like this frivolous warning that we talked about. Uh, A few of us this past year got letters that the IRS had put a lien. So I guess this would be another consequence. Filed a lien, a public lien notice in the county in which we live. And so this is something they've done on, on and off. It's not a new practice, but it is something that a few folks definitely got letters for this year. You know, so that is a possible, doesn't have immediate consequences, but... If you own your home in the county in which the IRS believes you live in, and now there's this public lien and you're going to try to sell your home, essentially the IRS has put everyone on notice that they get the first cut of the payment when you sell your house or any other major asset that'd be filed at your local county courthouse. I would just mention that these things feel scary. I mean, at least at the beginning they do. When you start realizing that most of it, it's just paper automatically generated, it doesn't feel quite as onerous or intimidating. But it definitely does feel like you're standing up to the man, right? You're looking at the face and someone's going to notice you. A person who is a non-filer, 
doesn't end up usually getting noticed if they're doing their thing correctly. And so they don't end up facing this. But for some of us, the point is, I want to say to the system, no, this is not what I support. This is not what I will be complicit in. And that's a moral motivation for me, to be honest and straightforward, which means I have to listen to their response. And it is intimidating. It's not quite as intimidating as an experience I had at one point in 1982. I was going to walk into the IRS office in Milwaukee and turn in my form saying I wasn't going to pay it. They had six guards in uniform standing in front of the door, and each of them was at least eight inches taller than I am. And they're standing with their arms crossed, and it's like, whoa, because they knew I was coming because we had done a press release. So that was very intimidating. And for the next week, I still felt shaky. So there's some things that shake you up. Do you get calls a lot from people who are really feeling that quiver, it's like, well, oh, the system's coming after me now. You know, the most common one, though, that I find is people get that first letter, and that's really scary. The IRS, I don't know if they still say it, but they it's probably still true that their letters are the best form of collection because people are scared by the letters. Even if, you know, a lot of us find out there's not as much teeth behind it as we might think at first. Sometimes when we're having a gathering or a meeting or something, we tell people, you know, or if I have somebody in New York who has gotten a letter, or they don't want to open it, you know, I so say, we'll bring it over and we'll open it together, or come to the meeting and we'll open it together. And people do that. You know, <laughs> Some come with a whole stack of them, like I've been afraid to open them. <laughs> but it's usually better to open them because it's usually not, it's nothing more than we want your money, usually. It is a common counseling thing to talk to people about it and try to figure out the options, which are not good, you know, because very few employers are not going to honor the levies. So you pretty much have to quit your job if you want to get out from under it. So that is a, you know, a pretty common topic of what to do. If somebody's in a salaried job, after some years of vortex resistance, it's not uncommon to hear from the IRS. But there was some other part. Oh, going to court. Yes. Um, <laughs> it doesn't happen very often, and it hasn't for some years. But, yeah, sometimes somebody, you know, we do encourage people if they have gotten a summons, which is exceedingly rare, to um, take someone with them. Don't go alone. Usually you have to go to the IRS first before you're ever going to get to actual court. But you have some meetings with the IRS. But if you're called into the IRS, yeah, take somebody with you because it's good to have someone else there if not for support, to also like be your other set of ears, you know, when you're very nervous, like you want somebody else to kind of be listening to. I had to go to the IRS some years back. It's been long since 2009, but both times I had to go, I took somebody with me and it was very helpful. We've only got a couple minutes left. So I think I'd like to grab whatever the most important remaining topics are. Could you do that, Lincoln? Yes. I want to talk a little bit more about war tax redirection. This is something we counsel and advise people to do. We obviously can't force people to do it, but we did a kind of poll or survey of many of our members within the last six months. And I believe it was 75 to 80% said they do practice war tax redirection with the taxes that they refuse. So we're We wish that was 100%, but we're glad that it's a high number. It means people are buying and that this isn't about getting out of paying federal income taxes. It's about not supporting war and putting that money to better use. And I'd say especially the last couple of years, one of the causes that people have been redirecting more money towards are environmental causes. 
and this isn't something we've talked earlier in this interview about, but there's a growing awareness that the U.S. military is the number one institutional polluter in the world. They use more, particularly oil, they use more oil, mainly by use of their jets and airliners, than any other institution in the world. And so really any conversation about addressing climate change and the climate crisis is inadequate that doesn't touch on the spending of the U.S. military. Redirection, obviously, can happen in a lot of different ways. And what we're talking about with redirection is here's money that the IRS believes I should give to them. I'm not going to give it to them, but I'm not keeping it for myself. Some tax resistance is all about I want to keep my money. War tax resistance is about I don't want to give it to something that is morally repugnant to me. And so not keeping it myself, I give it to an organization or group or something. One of the groups that I'm aware of is the Central California War Tax Resistance Group. They have a fund that people can put their withheld taxes in. If you leave it in your own account, the IRS might come and grab the money directly from your account. But when it's held in somebody else's hand, like this alternative life fund, then it's harder for the IRS to get a hold of it. That's one of the ways people redirect. What are some of the other ways that people redirect? Mostly just directly giving it to groups that you people, groups that you want to give it to, I think. Yeah, using the alternative funds is one way. And a lot of people just have their list that they give to every year if it's a particular thing going on, yeah, some particular issue that they want to make sure to give during that year. I would also say, though, just to make those people who are vortex resistors and not redirectors not feel guilty is that some people who are very collectible do feel like they need to set the money aside. And so if the IRS collects along with interest and penalties, because if they do collect, they take more maybe than what you might have originally paid. Some people do feel they have to set it aside in case of collection. And maybe down the line, they'll give it away because it didn't get collected. But that is one of the reasons why some people in the network don't redirect, but we do encourage it for sure. I mean, a lot of people also feel like through their volunteer work and the other things that they do for peace and justice, that, you know, that's their contribution to redirect. And same with people who live below the taxable income that, you know, their form of so-called redirection is a little different because they don't have the money to give away, but they do a lot of other things instead. Again, we have to get off the phone in just a minute. I'm just wondering, and maybe as a a little bit of a a conference between the two of you, Ruth Ben, 15 years working with the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, and you, Lincoln Rice, who you've been there for just two years. Is it your impression that war tax resistance is getting harder or easier? I mean, is there enough attrition in IRS agents that pretty soon everybody could do war tax resistance without facing other than getting a form in the mail? I do think it's gotten easier. I mean, back when I, (laughs) I always talk of the old days and the old days means like the seventies, the eighties, maybe the early nineties. That's when you actually had someone from the IRS might actually show up at your door. It's more likely that they might actually try to take your car. A wage garnishment was almost guaranteed. You know, now when we're talking to people thinking about war tax resistance, it's always like, well, this could happen, but it doesn't happen often. This happened twice last year, or this never happens anymore, but we have to let you know about it because it could. It's gotten easier, but I'd say the main impediment is that the IRS, even with their limited resources, has kept up their the sense of fear about them, and that it still intimidates people, even though 
the actual threat or the actual consequences and the chances of those happening have decreased substantially. Is that your perspective too, Ruth? Well, I would just add to that that I think it's gotten harder to be a non-filer. And that's partly mm-hmm. because of things like the healthcare where you had to like be in the system in order to get the credit back or the FAFSA form if you're applying for a college loans or grants or whatever. People who fill out the FAFSA, that form that everybody uses, now all the colleges you have to file. So there are ways that they're pulling people into the system that makes it more difficult to be a non-filer. And one of the calls I get is from longtime non-filers who are now found by the IRS, you know, because of some of these things. But they're better at matching reported income to non-filers than they used to be. So if you get a 1099 for some work you've done, that's usually a significant amount of money that, you know, they're better at that kind of matching. But, you know, I also don't want to make it sound like, oh, we do this because we get away with it, because I think a lot of us, as terrifying as the consequences could be to some of us, you know, they're economic consequences, but it's not like having a bomb land on your head. So, you know, we're willing, we got into it to take the risk because it's important to us to stop killing, to stop what's going on in the world. And those are far worse consequences that people who are the victims of the U.S. military are facing. So you always have to keep that in mind when that letter comes from the IRS. This is why I'm doing this, and this is not worse than what people in Iraq and Afghanistan and Africa and uh, here, there, and everywhere are facing from the U.S. military. Absolutely. Well, I'm afraid we have to end our conversation, but I've so loved talking with you both. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Lincoln Rice, who is the current coordinator for the National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee. Their website, nwtrcc.org. The link's on nordenspiritradio.org. And we're speaking also with Ruth Ben, who for 15 years had the coordinator position with Nutrick, as it's abbreviated to. Ruth, again, I just want to thank you so much for 15 years of service. We're still training in the people who are following in your footsteps. Even your aspirations starting out as a social worker, it seems it's of such a same cloth to be doing world healing. Thank you for your long-term dedication to this. Oh, thank you. Thanks for having us on. We have a workshop here in New York tomorrow, so it's not like I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) Dedication to the world never stops. And Lincoln, again, we had the earlier interview I did with you last year. Thank you so much for your work with Casa Maria, with National War Tax Resistance Coordinating Committee, and being generally a person who really cares about the world and lives it out, and then joins us here for Spirit in Action to let the world know some of the paths to doing world healing work. Thank you so much. Thank you for continuing this conversation on war tax resistance and for your own war tax resistance. And folks, again, go to nordenspiritradio.org. You'll find links to Nutrick and you'll find other programs like where I've interviewed Lincoln Rice before and other war tax resistance practitioners and activists. There's so much good news on our site and on the nutrick.org website. And we'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And
够